context of Matthew 9 and chapter 10. But let's open in prayer. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love to us. May our hearts be bound to you. May your feelings and affections and desires be what's our desires, our affections, our feelings and our hearts. May we love you so much and be ever reminded of what you have done for us. I pray in Christ's name, amen. As a teenager growing up in South Jersey, God had placed a a burden on my heart for my grandparents. It was just, as I look back, I think maybe unusual in some ways, but um, I would often sit with my grandparents and have their green Italian Bible open and trying to show them that it's not by, by good works you get to heaven. And I would turn them to Ephesians 2, 8, 9. I can remember sitting at the table with my grandmom. She was far more talkative and just actually crying with her. And she would hold my hand and say, Joy me, it's okay, we're going to heaven. But I said, Grandmom, it's not by good works. If you're trusting in works, you're not going to make it there. She said, No, Joy me, it'll be okay. I can remember being in high school at Baptist High, going in the, in the study hall, and thinking of my grandparents and crying out to God for their salvation. But I say all of that not to to boast about a burden that I had in the past, but to ask the question, God, why don't I have that burden now for everybody that I see? Why is not my heart move that, that I cry over the lost condition of people? Why don't I look at my neighbors? Why don't I look at people that I meet and have that ache and that burden where I just pause and say, God, save them, help them to come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. I want us to be challenged this morning as we look into Matthew chapter 9 and to see the heart of Jesus. Matthew 9, sheep reaching sheep. Before we get into this very familiar passage, I think we need to drop back for a moment into chapter 9, because if I may say, I think it just kind of pops out at us when we start to look at a couple words, and then put it together into context, and in a very familiar passage, at least to me when I approach it this way, I looked at it entirely new, and yet I've preached this passage numerous, a couple times before. Let's start, turn back to chapter 8, if you would, for a moment. Verse 24, I want to look at one word. One word that's used throughout here is the word behold. This word behold, same word is used 11 times from chapter 8, verse 24, right on through to chapter 10, verse 16. And when something's used a lot, it should kind of catch our attention. We should kind of ask, well, why is it being used so often? We come to 824, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea. So here is the writer. He's trying to focus us on something. By the way, the word behold, it's in the aorist imperative tense. And what that means is it's a command that's put in the past. So it's not a present command like keep beholding, but he's writing and he says, behold, look at this in this present situation. He wants to call their attention to something specific. He's telling them to like, almost like this, get down on your fours and and look at this thing. This is an amazing thing that he's sharing with us. He wants to call all of our faculties and understanding to a specific point. Behold! Grabs our ear. Give me your ear. I want you to listen to what I'm saying. And so this word that we're looking at, behold, is used here in 28. And then we come down and we come to verse 32. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold. So we see that, behold, drawing attention to Jesus, and then what happens to these 
demons that go in the pigs. And then we're shocked at another behold in verse 32. Behold all of the city. When they saw this, they said, please leave. So we're drawn to Jesus, sees what he does, and the people don't quite see it. 9 chapter verse 2. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. So now we see a man's brought to Jesus and what he's about to do. Verse 3. There are some religious leaders that are struggling with Jesus saying, forgive you your sins. Who is he? He's a blasphemer. So we're drawn to their attention, to their hardness of heart. Then we slide down to 9.10. And Jesus reclined at a table in the house of, of um, tax collectors. Behold, he was many times. So now we're looking at who Jesus is hanging out with. So Jesus heals people. He gets rid of demons. He heals a paralytic man. And now he's hanging out with tax collectors and with, with people that are kind of like sinners. And then we get down to 9.18. When he was saying these things, behold, look at another. A ruler came and knelt down. Ruler's concern, my, my daughter has died. Well, what's Jesus going to do in light of this dead daughter? And as he's traveling on the way to his house, we see another behold in verse 20, a woman who suffered from a discharge of blood. If I could just touch him and I, I could be healed. So we're, we're continually drawn to Jesus or the response that people have to Jesus. And then there's one more behold that I kind of think it, it meets a climax here in the 936 as they were going away, I mean, let me hit 32 first. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute. So there's one more behold. And then we get down into our passage. And attention is drawn to Jesus that we'll look at in a moment. Then in 1016, behold, I am sending you out as sheep. So there's a lot of beholding, a lot of attention drawn to Jesus, to him healing people and the response of people. But there's one other neat word that's really synonymous to the word behold, and it's the word saw. Um, if a you have it translated seeing one or two times in ESV, same Greek word. And so behold, calling attention, looking, and to see, saw, so that's used seven times in chapter, chapter 9. And it's drawing attention to when Jesus sees, what's his response? When Jesus sees people, what is his response? These two words are really closely pulling our attention into chapter 9, 36. But it doesn't stop there. Because the result of behold, the result of Saul, we then slide into chapter 10 and it opens up the whole chapter in light of seeing Jesus. So maybe we could say chapter 9 is we're to watch Jesus. And then chapter 10 is we're to go out and do what Jesus does. We're to go out and keep an eye on him, but we're also to go out and, and just... Do what Jesus did in chapter, in chapter 9. So I want us to see Jesus this morning. I want us to see what, what is Jesus like as we step into chapter 9. When Jesus looked at people, what did he see? What was moved by Jesus? What was his response when he looked at people? Did he just see their externals or did he see their spiritual need? And then as in, relight, in light of that, I want us then to be like Jesus. I want us to go out and do what Jesus did. So maybe the big idea would be save sheep, finding lost sheep for Jesus. Okay? The saved sheep that belong to Jesus, we're to go out and find lost sheep. But we'll never get to that point if we don't look first at Jesus. So we look at Jesus in chapter 9, and in chapter 10, they go out and do what Jesus did. 
as we step into chapter 9, verse 35, what's the first two words? And Jesus, right? Is that what you have? Right? Y'all with me? We're awake. We're here. Verse 35, and Jesus. I forgot. I thought I was in a charismatic church. We're in a Baptist church. Okay, you can go back. And, and Jesus. But you know what? It's so important that we have to be reminded. And Jesus. Who is Jesus? I mean, because if we have just some Joe Blow disciple, okay. But when we understand who Jesus is, and Jesus. And I pause intentionally just, just briefly there this morning because to be reminded who Jesus is. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 17, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. So we're starting to see that the Word, Jesus is the Word. He's, he's the eternal God. When He says in John 10, 30, I and my Father are one. Or when we see Thomas, my Lord and my God. Or when John writes in Revelation 1, 7, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. So we get that Jesus is more than just some moving rabbi teacher floating through the countryside. And Jesus... He's God, the creator of the universe. So should we not want to follow him? 10, 24, and 25, but we're getting ahead. We should want to be like Jesus and Jesus. And he comes into the countryside through all of the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues. So Jesus is moving in their midst. And it says that he's declaring, he's proclaiming the gospel. He's teaching the good news of Jesus Christ. He's teaching that news that will radically change people's hearts and lives. And he's calling people to himself. What does he do when he's moving in their midst? When Jesus declaring, it says he's healing every disease and every affliction. So he's moving amongst them, and he's healing people. He's healing all diseases. He's healing all infirmities. He's healing all blindness and ailments. Yes, he saw needs that, that people were blind. He saw people that could not hear. He saw people that demons in them, and he had to cast out demons. He saw people that were lame. He saw people that even were dead. But is that all he saw? Is that all that Jesus Christ saw? Look in verse 36. But when he saw, when he saw the crowds, what happens when Jesus sees? What happens when Jesus sees people? You see, here is the divine one coming, walking amongst them, healing everyone. But what happens when he sees? Let me ask you. What happens when you see people? So you just look at people and zero in on them and say, oh, you know, I, I like that tie. Maybe I could, I wish I had a tie like that. Do, do we just see the external? Do, do we see, see more than just the external? Or is that where we're stuck on? Do we say, oh, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know why guys wear beards. Maybe because I can't have a beard. Maybe that's why I'm jealous. Or why do people, do we, do we just look at the external things or they have a nice coat or nice, or when we're waiting for somebody that we're impatient because they're taking so long and we're just irritated and all we see is that they're taking too long. What's the result of our seeing? Is it indifference? Is it apathy? Is it greed? Maybe jealousy. They have something that I wish I had. What was the result of Jesus' seeing? 
But when he saw the crowds, what happens when we see? Are we too busy to see? Do we go out there in the community? Do we pull into our driveway and we wave to our neighbor, but we really don't see what Jesus sees? But when he saw the crowds, what's the result? He had compassion on them. When Christ sees, he has compassion. This word compassion is, is, is a rich, rich word. It's, it's really used of inward parts. It's a word that defines inward parts. We don't like to use, sometimes it's translated bowels. That sounds gross. But it's the inner intestines, often referring to the lungs, to the liver, or the heart, your internal parts. And that's the way the Greeks would refer to the compassion, their inner person. It's really speaking of their emotions. In fact, we use it the same way. My heart aches over what this family is going through. And, and when you hear a loved one that passes away that just catches you by surprise, it's like your head spins and you're, 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 you lose your breath and maybe even start crying because it just so crushes you because it wasn't to happen. When Jesus saw them, he was moved with compassion. You know, what moves you to compassion? What, what moves me to compassion? What, what moves us to compassion? You know, sometimes when I'm downstairs with my dad doing whatever we, we need to do, and, and on this channel too seems always be this commercial, they put these pitiful dogs on. You know, like here they are again. And it, honestly, you know, I love dogs, but the commercial kills me. Because you, you're kidding me about some stupid dog? There are people that have needs. You're trying to get money because this dog looks so pitiful when there are people in the world that need help. Now, I'm a dog lover. The other animal that some people have, I can't stand them, but I love dogs. (laughs) But still, we show these pitiful dog commercials. Is that what moves you? Oh, honey, let's write a check for $25 to this animal welfare organization so they could feed the doggies. Or maybe we get moved to compassion when, when a loved one passes away. Or we saw a couple months ago a lot of compassion or a lot of passion and energy at, Brud, at Judge um, Brett Kavanaugh's hearing and women that got in, in the face of Senator Flake from Arizona. They were upset with him, and the woman said, you're telling all women that they don't matter. Don't look away. Look at me. At the elevator, just burned in our minds. What, what moves us to compassion? What moves our energy level? But here Jesus, when he saw the people, he was moved with compassion. When Jesus looks at them and he sees a situation. And this word, by the way, it's more than just to see a situation. It also connects with it a desire to be used to make a difference in their life. So we don't have compassion if we just feel, oh, that's too bad. We have compassion. Oh, that's too bad. What can I do to help that situation? That's what this word means. And with Jesus, it's always connected that way. Here's just a few quick examples. In Matthew chapter 14, we won't turn there. Verse 14, after Jesus heard of the beheading of John the Baptist, he went away into the wilderness to be by himself because he was hurting. It was a good friend of his that that got killed. But what happened? The crowd heard that Jesus was there, and the crowd came. Did Jesus say, hey, listen, 
man, just give me a, a few hours to just grieve here with my loss of my, my, my relative here. Just kind of go away. No. Jesus saw the multitude. He was moved with compassion. And then what did he do? He healed them. Or I look at the next example in Matthew 15. A great crowd is following Jesus. And they've been following. And he says they've been without food for three days. So what does Jesus do after they've been without food for three days? He desires to feed them, and he feeds the fine. He says he's moved with compassion, and then he fed them. Compassion, always action on Jesus' part. Or we look at the next one in Luke chapter 7. I love this story. And here is Jesus coming into the city of Nain, and coming out of Nain as a widow, burying her only son, it says. And Jesus meets, Jesus' group of celebrators meets the group of mourners. They come face to face. Jesus saw, it says, he was moved with compassion, and then he went on his way. Is that what it said? No, Jesus stops everything, and he commands the boy to come up out of that casket. I mean, when Jesus sees and is moved with compassion, things happen. I love in the, in the prodigal son, and the father is waiting on the porch, and the father keeps looking. And the prodigal son finally comes to his senses, comes back. And it says, when the, the father saw, he was moved with compassion. And what did he do? He went running to the son. You see, when Jesus sees he's moved with compassion, things always happen. And the question that I have to ask myself and that I really want us to ask us is, when I see... Do things happen? Am I moved to compassion? Do, do I, first of all, see people? Do I see their spiritual plight? Do I see their spiritual situation? And then am I moved to action? Am I moved to, to, to do something on their behalf? Does, do I allow God to use me to make a difference in their lives? You know, sadly, human history, should I say personal history and human history teaches us that we're so callous, that we're so insensitive, that, that we forget people around us. We forget that we have been rescued. We that were once trusting in works to get to heaven. We that were once trusting in our own merit. We were one time blinded spiritually. We were one time separate from God. We were one time outside of the family of God. All of these truths. And we forget that's the way people are out there. And we forget to try to build relationships. We forget to try to share the gospel with them. Perhaps one of the saddest biblical examples, if I may say, of a man that was insensitive, the man that was callous, a man that was all about himself and couldn't care less about the need for others to receive grace, God's mercy is who? Jonah, right? Jonah is called by God to go to the city of Nineveh. He doesn't want to go. In fact, he gets on a ship and tries to go the other way. And we'll see where Joppa um, 2020 is, but here as he gets on the ship and he says, I'm going to go the other direction. But God gets a hold of him, eventually lands him on the shores, get, makes his way then to Nineveh, travels that distance and preaches the gospel. And after God does his tremendous work, does he say, God, you're awesome. God, thank you for saving the people of Nineveh. Thank you for your amazing grace that has once again been demonstrated. Is that what he says? No, he's upset with God. He's angry with God. The opposite is true of Jesus Christ. When he saw, he was moved with compassion, and he what? And he acted. When Christ sees, Christ moved with compassion, he does something about it. 
Look at the condition of man that's described in this passage. When he saw the crowds, here's, here's why he's moved to compassion. Here's why he was able to, to do what he does besides being the compassionate, loving, awesome, gracious, merciful God he is. He had compassion for them. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Christ was, was moved by their sicknesses. Christ was moved by their diseases. Christ was moved to deep compassion for people, but he was moved deeper because of their spiritual plight. Christ was moved more emotionally and, and deeply because man needed to be freed from his penalty and bondage of sin. That's why he came. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. That announcement made in the hillside of Bethlehem that a Savior has come. Well, Christ came because man needed to be rescued. He saw man in this bondage. This word harassed, it actually means to be skinned. It means to be flayed. Some of you guys that are fishermen and how you fillet and cut open fish or hunters and you do your flaying, that's the picture here. It's of a sheep that's been walking around in the, amongst some maybe sharp rocks and cut close to a rock, and he had his fleece torn. It's to be skinned, it's to be flayed. It came to mean to be harassed, to be mangled, to be annoyed, to be torn apart. So Christ sees these, peop, these, these people about him as sheep that are just their fleeces hanging off and they're bleeding. How it's pretty sad, ugly condition. And he realizes if they don't have a shepherd, they are going to perish forever. Because that's why he says they have no shepherd. So he sees the condition of people. They are skinned. They are flayed. God, when was the last time that I looked at people and I realized that they are skinned, that they are flayed, that, they, that they're, they're in a serious critical condition spiritually, that they are about to step into eternity apart from you. See, this is what Christ sees. This is his emotions. This is the compassion that's moved towards these people. But it just doesn't stop with, with the harassed. He then says that they were helpless because they were harassed and helpless. You know what helpless means? It means to be thrown to the ground, to be thrown away. That's, that's the true meaning. Just throw it aside, to be discarded. I no longer want this. You know, Pastor Ray asked for um, sweaters or jackets that we could send down to, um, to Peru if you have some. Hopefully it's not just stuff that discarded we don't care about. But it's that idea, okay, I don't need it any longer. But it's worse than that with this word, helpless. It's something that we don't want any longer. It's, it's worthless to us. It's of no value. Once in a while you come across some pretty sickening articles about babies that have been abandoned. And um, about eight, nine months ago, I came across this article, which was written a little bit earlier in April of 2018. It was entitled, Abandoned Baby Found in Woodland Was Covered in Animal Bites. And this little baby girl outside of Manchester, England, they found frozen to death, naked, nothing on, umbilical cord still partially attached, a lot of bites all over her body. Just wicked. But you see, 
That's the way Jesus saw these people, that they were discarded. They were helpless. They were abandoned, that nobody was caring for them. And he, our God, Savior, hero, came for that purpose. He came to help people that, so to speak, were abandoned or in trouble spiritually because they would not be abandoned by the caring God, Savior, Creator. And that's the connection when he says, sheep without a shepherd. Jesus saw these people as as sheep that are wounded, that are torn, that are ripped apart, either by, by hostile animals or just by, by rocks or, by, or, or the like, and that are in serious physical, so to speak, spiritual condition. You know, even sheep, if they're left to themselves, not only can they not fight off predators, they're not good foragers. They can't forage for food. They're, they're in trouble that way. They're just totally helpless, and Christ views people that way. You know, he views your unsafe family member that way. He views your neighbor that way. He views the person that you're going to sit across in the office if you work out in the world. He views some acquaintances that way, that they're helpless, that they're spiritually alienated from him because they're sheep without a shepherd. You know, there are a lot of people in the world that, that um, they're religious people. They believe they have a shepherd. They'll go to a service, whether it's a Baptist service, Lutheran, Methodist, Catholic, Jehovah's Witness, but, and they'll, they'll sit there and they'll hear tickle words, maybe soft words that are spoken, but they won't hear the gospel. They won't have a preacher that will open the word of God to them and share with them that you can't be saved by your works, you can't be saved through your own efforts, it's through Jesus Christ alone. And they'll preach more maybe from the Reader's Digest than they will from the Bible. It's sheep without a shepherd. And they're religious people without a shepherd to lead and guide them. Well, who's to go? Who will share the gospel with them? So Christ is talking to the disciples, and he says he sees all of these people as sheep without a shepherd, people in the world that are dead, that are blind spiritually, that are alienated, that need someone to go. But he moves on, and he says, then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plenteous. He wants to alert them. There is a great harvest out there. And it's plenteous. The harvest, you know what the harvest is? It's all of the people that have not trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior. It's people that's trusting in themselves, that they could save themselves. It's people that's trusting maybe in religion, or maybe that they're a pretty good person, or something that they can do. It's the doing. They haven't trusted in Christ what he has done. The harvest is plenteous. And that harvest, if it continues in that direction, they will... Spend eternity separate from God. In fact, Christ spoke the words, wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. So he's talking to the disciples and he's pouring out his heart and they've been watching him in chapter 9. They've been beholding Jesus. They've been catching what Jesus is all about. They've been seeing the compassion, the care of Jesus. Saul, 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 Saul. Behold, 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 behold. They've been looking at Jesus and he's about to unload on them what they're to do. But he starts by first saying to them, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Let me see this world, dear Lord, as though I were looking through your eyes. A world of men who don't love you, Lord, but a world for which you died. Let me kneel with you in the garden, blur my eyes with tears of agony. For if once I could see this world the way you see it, I just know I'd serve you more faithfully. 
Let me stand far above my petty problem and grieve for man hell bound eternally. For if once I could see this world the way you see it, I just know I'd serve you more faithfully. What is my response to the spiritual condition of the lost? Back some nine years ago, there was a lady named Anna LeBron that was standing in the Bronx on the edge of the subway waiting for the train to come. And she was accidentally bumped by a group of teenagers and fell onto the track. And people encouraged her to get up. And a guy named Douglas Murphy jumped down onto the track and grabbed the lady and said, Wake up, wake up, get up. And she was unconscious. She could not get up. Carefully not touching the third rail, which would have electrocuted him, he picked her up, put her on the platform, and got himself on the platform. Six seconds later, the train, train came whizzing by. Well, I think of that illustration when I think of that there are people all around us that are on the rails. And we're on the platform. There's a train coming. You know what that train is? That's called death, eternity apart from Christ. Hell. And yet we're on the platform. We're busy. We're talking. We're hanging out with our friends and enjoying ourselves. And they're right down there on the tracks in front of us. What do I have to do to see their need? Christ says the laborers are few. So the disciples have been with Jesus. They have watched Jesus. That's the key of the word behold. They have watched all that he has done. They have been with him in all of these different places and things that he has done. And now he's about to call them to do something. You see... I must watch Jesus and then go do what he did. There was a reason that the drawing attention, behold, behold, just watch Jesus. Watch what he does. Watch his compassion. Watch his care. Watch him reach out for people. Watch all that he does. And then he brings it to this pinnacle before he sends them out in chapter 10. And he says in, verse, in, in chapter 9, 36 or 38, the labors are few. And he tells them, now, go and pray for labor. The laborers are few. Where have all the laborers gone? There's just not a whole lot of people that care. There's not a whole lot of people that are out in God's kingdom because we're wrapped up in ourselves. We're wrapped up in what we want to do. We're too indifferent. We don't share the gospel. And I think we could answer that fairly by asking, okay, God, when was the last time I shared the gospel? When was the last time you led someone to the Lord? You know what the sad, I, I find a sad reality? Most Christians don't know their neighbors three or four doors down. When was the last time you had neighbors over? Or I did. When was the last time that we, we invested in their lives and talked to them about their spiritual condition? See, the Lord says the labors are few. He said, and here's how, he says, I want you to remedy it. And he gives us a couple steps here in verse 38. And their first step is to see what Jesus sees and understand that there's, there's few laborers. He says, the laborers are few. So get that. There are few. The laborers are few. There's not a lot of people out there sharing the gospel. And then he says, this is what I want you to do. Pray. He says, just go pray. Pray what? Pray that the Lord of the harvest would send forth laborers. Do you see what he says? Pray. He says, we, we could all do that, right? We could pray that God sends forth more laborers. He says, God, I, I pray earnestly. Pray earnestly that God would send forth more laborers. Now, this word is a pretty, pretty awesome word. 
this word earnestly. It's really the word that's used to beg. It's translated many times in the New Testament to beg. In fact, it's used in Luke chapter 8 when a demon was being cast out, a demon of the Gadarenes, and they begged him not to throw him into, into hell just yet. Let me go into the swine. And they begged Jesus. It's used in Luke chapter 5 when a beggar came to Jesus and asked him to, to, to heal him. Let me tell you, I don't think he went to Jesus like this. Um, Jesus, um, would you heal me? Is that, that, that okay? You think, you think that's what it did? I would scare you to do like they really did. You know, how they begged. I mean, it was, it was that kind of begging. We're to pray like that. You see the connection? We're, we're to pray like that. We're, we're, to, we're to pray for labors like that. Here's the catch. If we pray like that, what's going to happen? Now, my Sunday school can't, can't answer that because you guys nailed that. If I pray for, my, for laborers like that, what's going to happen? Okay, I'm thinking of my neighbor. God, send, send someone to witness to Fred Hill, and I'm, I'm praying passionately like that. Or, or my co-worker, God, send somebody to save Fred. You know, and I'm just crying out to God like that. What's going to happen? That's right. You're going to go. You have that kind of prayer. God is going to send you. And thus, thus we step into chapter 10. It's awesome. Look in chapter 10. Chapter 10, verses 1 to 4, is all about the 12 disciples. They're going to go. We come to verse, verse 6. Jesus says to them, But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So Christ is telling them. He says, I'm telling you to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Are you, are you putting all the dots together now? Behold, 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 behold. They've been watching Jesus. And now he's telling them to go and do what Jesus did. You've been watching me. Now I want you to go do what I did. And he's telling them they don't have a shepherd out there. I am the shepherd. And then he says in verse 6, I want you to go now to the lost sheep, the, the people out there. I mean, look out there. Open up the blinds. They're the lost sheep out there. By the way, that's not to say that there aren't some lost sheep in here. But he's telling us to go to the lost sheep out there. Then there's one more whammy. Look in verse 16. And he says to them, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep. You see what he says? You're the sheep. I'm sending you out to save sheep to go find the lost sheep so you could bring them to the great shepherd. Sheep are to reach sheep for Jesus. Another connection is you're going to go out, they're going to be wolves. They're going to hate you. They're, not, they're going to laugh at you. They're going to think you're a big idiot. By the way, that's what they did to Jesus in 9.3. He's a blasphemer. In um, verse 11, they crush and they challenge him. Sitting with tax collectors, eventually would be executed. They're just to be like their master. And that brings us to our conclusion, verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. If they tortured Jesus and they laughed at Jesus, would I expect any less? If the great shepherd, God the creator, that came to this earth is telling me to pray for laborers and then he sends out the laborers to find the lost sheep, the saved sheep to find the lost sheep, what am I doing sitting on my hands? 
I am to be like my master. I am to be like the rabbi. I am to go as he went. John Knox cried out, Give me Scotland or I die. It's the cry of George Whitfield who says, Give me souls or take my soul. It's the cry of David Brainerd who said, who was right here in New Jersey, late 1700s or mid-1700s, reaching Indians for Jesus Christ. I care not where I go or how I live or what I endure so that I may save souls. When I sleep, I dream of them. When I awake, they are first in my thoughts. No amount of scholastic attainment, of able and profound exposition, of brilliant and stern eloquence can atone for the absence of a deep, impassioned, sympathetic love of human souls. End of quote. Two-fold action plan in closing that I present to you. What are we to do in light of all of this? Number one, watch Jesus. Read this account again. Just look at Jesus. Look at the compassion and the heart and the care that Jesus had for people. As we watch Jesus, we'll see the affections of his heart. We'll see the stirring of his heart. And we'll desire to be like Jesus. We'll desire to have that same compassion. We'll see that the harvest is plenteous. So watch Jesus. And secondly, go do what Jesus did. May we pray for laborers. God, send someone to reach my neighbor. God, send someone to reach my, my relative. God, send someone to reach my, my work associate. God, send one to reach my dear friend with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus Christ and all that you have done. Father, may we desire to be like Jesus in our lives. God, may we desire to have Christ magnified continually through our lives. Father, we thank you for the grace of Christ that's shown upon us, that changed our lives. May we be used by your grace, God, to bring others to yourself. I pray in Christ's name, amen.